beautiful truths. It is a prayer to be sure that we would all do well to pray fervently. Um, Let's start with this. Let's start with this. The fact of one thing points to the reality of another. The fact of one thing points to the reality of another. If I can put it this way, the desire, the longing for one thing points to the presence, the reality, the possibility of another thing. I'm going to put before you what's oftentimes referred to as the argument from desire, and it's a good argument. It's a very good, it's a very good sound argument that no few wise folks in years past have, have made. So, the hunger pangs of a child point to the reality, the existence of food. The bent of the duck to want to swim points to the reality of water. Our romantic inclinations as men and women points to the reality of sex. You get the idea. The, reality, the, the fact, the reality of one thing, the presence and existence of one thing, points to, tells us, drives us towards the existence, the possibility of yet another. It's the argument of a desire. But the argument of desire goes a little further and makes this point, and that is, but what of the things, what of, what of the longing that I have within my heart, the deep longing within my heart, that is never satisfied by the things of this world? What does that point to? The fact that there is more than just this world. If there are longings within my heart that the things of this world simply cannot satisfy, the argument of desire tells me, it points me towards the reality of the presence, the possibility, the certainty that there is more to this life than just this life. And the hope, the certainty, the possibility of a relationship with the living God. You've got a Bible. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Okay, all that said, how then can we have a relationship with this living God? If it's possible, if the longings of my heart drive me, point me, direct me towards this yet more somehow, How do we have that? How does that happen? How is it possible? How does it come about? Matthew is the first gospel of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first book, in fact, of the New Testament. We are in Matthew 22, and in a long-running series here in this gospel. And we are going to read in studies, you can see there on the screen, uh, verses 1 through 14. It's a parable, it's a story that Jesus told no few, he tells a few, recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew. This one is often referred to as the parable of the wedding feast. Hear now God's word. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. 
And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Well, we need to pray for the Lord's illumination of this passage. Let's do that now. Lord, we just sang a moment ago, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross, I cling. In many ways, we come to this parable uh, with uh, not a lot here either in terms of our understanding of certain cultural traditions, and uh, even if we had yet full understanding of what was going on there in in the first century, uh, Jesus' time is contemporary, is their understanding, their experience, even if we had full full understanding of all of that, we still come to this in great need because there is so much here that rubs right against the grain of the way we think, of the way we feel, of the way we live. This passage all through confronts us. In some ways, it's, it's easier to understand than It seems, but there's just so much in terms of our preconceptions and our ideas about how things ought to be that we just can't hear it. And so we ask that you would punch through that here, that you would guide us, that you would take us by the hand, that you would direct our eyes, help us to to see, to hear, really, 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 that we might know what it is to be invited to this wedding feast and gladly take hold of this invitation. We pray in your name. Amen. So we need to understand that Jesus' earthly ministry, the theme, the tenor, again and again and again, is about the gospel of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, all of his miracles, all of his entirety of his message, all of his works, all of his words were driving on that point, the kingdom of God and the coming of the kingdom in with his having arrived on, on the scene. It had been prophesied for centuries that heaven was going to come down to earth, that the future was going to invade the present. And in Jesus, his arriving, it has come, not yet in full, not yet in full, But like the sun coming up over the horizon is dawn, light has come, not in full, but it has come, and yet more is coming. The message, the tension there, the now and the not yet with the coming of the kingdom. But to be sure, Jesus is the king. With his coming, he has come to carry out a work of the reclamation of everything that is rightfully his, which, by the way, is everything. The reclamation of everything that is rightly his, the renewal of all things, the redemption of all 
things to bring the rule and reign of God to bear on everything, everything over the scope of the cosmos, including our hearts. That's the message, what he said, the the good news. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. Now that, when you think about it, is an astonishing thing just to talk about right there. Just that fact, that that is his message, and that was what his earthly ministry was about. Now we're going to take it to another stage, something else that's equally as astonishing, and that is he calls us to participate in that. He calls us, as his, if we are indeed his followers, he calls us to be agents of the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom, to participate in this. To, he puts forth this invitation into, to join, to be a part of his kingdom. It's an astonishing thing. Think about it. The king of all is calling us to be citizens of his kingdom kingdom. Think about it. The living God is calling us, inviting us into his kingdom. It is so vital that we respond in the right way to that invitation. It is so vital that we, that we, that we respond in the right way to that invitation. Now, all of Jesus' parables were ultimately about the kingdom of God. This one's no exception. It's just plain as day. He says that. At the, at the very start, there in verse 1 and 2. But uh, this one shines a, a, a different shade of light uh, upon the reality of, of the kingdom and what it means to be citizens of the kingdom and what it means to accept this invitation. Looking at it from three angles, it's there in your outline, these three parts, these three points, helping us to understand what it is, who is this king, and what does it mean that he is ushered in this kingdom, what does it mean to be a part of this kingdom, These three things give us really helpful understanding of what all that means. First, in understanding the context of the invitation. That's the first thing. The second thing is the consequences of refusing that invitation. And the third thing are the conditions of acceptance. All right? Those three things. The context of the invitation, absolutely vital. The consequences of refusing it, that's absolutely vital. And then the conditions of acceptance. How is it that we can become a part of this kingdom? What does it mean to be agents of his in this? So let's start with the first. That's usually a helpful place to go. The first point, the context of the invitation. Absolutely vital that we understand the context of reality, the context of this invitation that is given to be a part of this kingdom. Verses 1 through 4. Read it again. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The wedding feast, the party, is the context. The invitation itself The generosity, the grace of the king, that's the context. That's the context of everything. If we don't understand that, we don't understand anything. We cannot begin to grapple with the realities of this parable, this story, if we are not beginning to settle in on the king's great generosity. The imagery is obviously from the ancient world of a wedding, a royal wedding feast, 
a banquet that is held by a great and mighty king on behalf of his son in the occasion of his, of his wedding. Great generosity is on display here. Think with me that you have this fine meal, fascinating guests, nothing is, is left to chance, so much abundance is being provided here. And, and by the way, this is well worth noting, it was a great honor to be invited. It was a great honor to be invited to this festival, this banquet, this meal. Oh, and by the way, it's free of charge. No purchase necessary. It's free of charge. No payment. No payment. All you have to do is just come. Just come. Just show up. Just come sit down and enjoy the great abundant generosity of this king on display. And then as you keep reading through the story, it's not just his generosity, but his amazing grace. As we keep reading on through the, it, past the first act and past, uh, well, in the first act is what you see, these, these, um, the reluctance, the stubbornness of that first group of invitees. And the king's unwillingness to let, let that refusal just go, his pursuit of them, his longing, his desire that they would be there at the table. You see, not just his abundant provision, but his condescension, chasing after them. No, 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 come. He sends you know, another wave of his servants out into the highways and byways. Please do come, despite their stubbornness, despite their resistance. We see that. And then as though that's not enough, as you keep reading, and now on into the second act, and after that refusal, initial refusal by these stubborn ones, not wanting to cancel the banquet, wanting to still have the party. He sends his servants out to the highways and byways to find and bring in, as the text says, both the bad and the good, so much so that the wedding hall is filled with guests. This is his grace. This is his grace. No one is there. Actually, no one who is at this feast actually belongs there. It's completely because not only of his generosity, but his grace. That's the context. That's the context of the invitation, the generosity and the grace of the king. What do we learn from this? Just here from the start, there's no room for boasting. That's just completely ruled out. No room for boasting. If you find yourself sitting there at the banquet table, it has nothing to do with your goodness. It is despite your efforts towards goodness, and it has everything to do with the goodness of the king. That's your only hope of having a seat at that table. And the second thing that's worth thinking about, it stems directly from that, because that is a pride-crushing message, to know that the only way you can be there is because of his goodness and grace towards you. That is a pride-crushing crushing message. And what that springs forth, what that allows for, is the sole hope that we have for genuine, beautiful, enriching, transformative community. That pride-crushing message is the only hope we have of real community together. You know why? Because humble people are the only ones who have a hope of getting along. Humble people 
are the only ones who have any hope of getting along. Those two things, right from the start, extraordinary implications here because of the generosity, the goodness of the king. I, let, can we just stop and pray for a moment right now, right here, in, in the point one? I'm not going to stop the sermon. Hang on, we've got three, two more points. Just let's marinate in this for a minute. Father, we don't get this. We think we're good enough. We don't think we need your goodness. We don't think we need your grace. We do. And we can't understand anything else in this story unless we get this. And there's some hard stuff coming in this story, some rough waters we've got to navigate. And we ask you to help us there, but we can't. We're not even ready to begin unless we hear the context, the foundation of just the, the implicit assumptions of this story. Your goodness and generosity and grace towards us. We pray in your name. Amen. Second point, the consequences of refusing. That's the setting. That's the context. Now, what are then are the consequences of refusing that invitation? We need to keep reading, verses 5 through 10. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now the imagery shifts from a royal feast, a royal wedding feast, to the king's rebellious subjects. Again, imagery from the ancient world worth grappling with here. What we have going on here is high treason. In their refusal to come, it is high treason against the king. That's, the, that's what would have been understood by Jesus' hearers in the first century. This is beyond rudeness. You know, like you and I, we don't feel like RSVPing, so we just don't do it, and then we don't show up. I mean, that's rude, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is far beyond violations of etiquette and what would have offended mismanners. This, this mistreatment and abuse of the, of the servants of the king would have been taken by the king as a personal affront because those are his personal representatives. And to strike at them is to strike at him. Understand? This is treason. This is the makings of an insurrection. Their hatred, their violence were the seedlings of an uprising within his kingdom, of, an out, of a full-on-scale rebellion within the land. And that high treason then helps us to understand the king's response, his royal wrath. If we don't understand the treasonous response, we can't really understand the royal wrath, and the king comes off as a, as a little tyrant throwing a tantrum as though he's some sort of insecure, neurotic ruler who's just striking back at people that he doesn't like. And that's not at all, I was going to say not exactly, not at all uh, what's going on here. Rather, in the context, 
This king's response, putting down this rebellion, putting down this insurrection and this uprising, is the only just and necessary thing that he can do. He can't overlook this. Something has to be done that is decisive and resolute. The evil has to be addressed. It can't be ignored. It cannot be overlooked. It needs to be dealt with. That's the consequences of refusing the invitation. Now, what do we learn from this? At least a couple more things. First, the nature and reality of our sin, our transgressions, our iniquity is nothing less than rebellion against God, a shaking of the fist, perhaps a gesture of a finger, treason against the king. That's what our sin, our transgressions, our iniquity really is, which, helps us, which should help us understand the gravity, the weightiness of the offense. It tells us something about the nature and reality of our sin. This also tells us something about the nature and the reality of hell. It's alluded to here. It is alluded to here. God is a holy God. He cannot ignore evil and pretend as though the treason is no big deal. He would hardly be holy. He would hardly be just if he was to do so. He cannot overlook this. It has to be dealt with. It's one thing worth noting. Another is, related to that, is the reality of our choice and the significance and the consequences of our choice in this. Put it this way. It's the, it's the most intolerable compliment that we could ever be given. If we spend our lives wanting to live apart from God, and we are bound and determined to turn our back from him, a day will come when he will grant us what we've wanted for eternity. And that is the suffering, the alienation of hell. The reality reality of sin. This is alluded to here, and it needs to be grappled with here. But that, you understand, comes in the context of the goodness and the generosity of the king and a turning, a spurning of the invitation, which then takes us to the third point. God has invited us into his kingdom. The living God has invited us into his kingdom, we need to respond in the right way. Well, then what would a right response look like? If we have a clear picture of the consequences of a refusal, what would the right response look like? We have, well, that's the third point, the conditions of acceptance. How can we be a part of this kingdom? In most ways, what we see here in verses 11 through 14 is a negative example, but it does point us towards the right path. Verses 11 through 14, let's read that again. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man 
who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so we have in this ancient context the royal wedding feast, the rebellious subjects, and now we'll just say a wedding crasher. That's really what what you have here. Somebody showing up in a way that he certainly shouldn't have. What does it mean for us to to have a right place, to come in the right way, to accept this offer, to come a part of this kingdom? It involves first what we'll call outer clothing. The right attire. The king provides that. And the king alone is the one who can provide that. We have evidence of in the ancient world, a custom that in these in feasts such as this, celebrations such as this, banquets such as this, the king provided not only the food, but also the garments for his guests. And everyone was expected to come with those garments upon them. That was one of the ancient customs in, in, in the world in which Jesus lived, and his hearers would have understood something of this, which, by the way, fits perfectly into a biblical theme, biblical imagery of the Lord clothing us with his righteousness. This was read earlier from Zechariah. That's not the only place you see that. See that. You see it in several other places in the Old and New Testament as well. His taking, removing our filthy rags from us and putting upon us his royal robes. And Jesus provides that for his people now. His righteousness, clothing us, such that when the Father looks at his, at his children, at us, his disciples of Jesus, whose righteousness does he see? Jesus's. Because we're clothed with his robes. And thank God, not ours. Well, this man doesn't think much of all that. He just shows up as he will. In his presumption, he doesn't see himself as having any need of the king's robes. He doesn't feel any need of that at all. He figures that what he has is enough. Well, the king feels otherwise. And so this man's story does not end particularly well, to say the least. So for starters, in order to have a seat at the table, there has to be the right attire, the right clothing, the outer clothing. But there's something else going on And you see that it's the very end of the story. Actually, it's not in the story. It's Jesus' summary of the story. An inner drawing. So you have the outer clothing, but an inner drawing. Verse 14, this is not actually part of the story, but it's Jesus' summary of the story. Verse 14, 4, well, that tells us he's giving us an explanation for the entire story. For many are called, but few are chosen. Why is it? This is not the only time he tells a story getting at this point, why is it that so, so many hear this invitation but fail to respond in the right way? Why is that? Many are called, but few are chosen. What is he saying? He's saying that the call goes out. The call does indeed go out, but not all hear it. Not all have the ability to hear it. They have to have been, before the beginning of time, chosen. Then there has to have been this deep inner work of the Holy Spirit upon the, that 
man or woman's heart that they would then hear and understand and embrace the gospel. A deeper call, a deeper knowing, where the Spirit enables us to, well, convinces us of our need. Deeply so, enlightening our understanding of the, the nature, the claims of the gospel. Then we're actually able to hear it for the, for the first time. But going further than that, not just a deeper knowing, but enabling us to gladly come to see our need of these righteous robes and the filthiness of our rags. The Spirit working this, doing a work of renewal in our hearts, a deep work of persuasion, enabling us to embrace Jesus and what it is that he's done. These are the conditions. These are the conditions, the conditions of acceptance, if you will, being a part of. How is it that we can have a, be a part of this kingdom? How is it that we can be, have a seat at this to the table of the wedding feast. This is what is necessary. You understand that from start to finish, it is the king's work. It is the king's provision. Our security is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And we have none outside of that. Not just a little. None. None. Only in him. The king has provided absolutely and you know what that requires of us in terms of a response? Everlasting thanks. The deepest trust. Highest praise. Greatest hope. He's done it all. He's done absolutely all of it. The living God is inviting us into his kingdom. Ours is to respond in the right way. Let me, let me end on this idea, this concept, this image of invitation. We get all kinds of invitations. You can't hardly sometimes go to your mailbox without getting you know, more than one, depending on the time of year. You get invitations to weddings. You get invitations to graduations. You get invitations to parties and gatherings of, of different kinds. And there are all kinds of different responses, of course, to those invitations, depending on what they are. Sometimes it's the response of the, of the uh, you go bug-eyed. You're like, you just can't believe that you got invited. You're just like, you're just blown away, thrilled. Or it's a different eye motion. It's an eye roll. Like, oh my gosh. You know, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, sometimes, depending on what it is, who it is, where it is, all the... It's, it's the, the thrill of anticipation. You, you run to your calendar, and you're like, I just, I'm going to make a way to be there. Or it's the dread of expectation. And so you drag your feet, and you just you don't even respond. You just don't even show up. What drives the responses? What drives those responses to those invitations? It's whether or not you find it appealing, whether or not you find it worthwhile, whether or not we find it necessary. All right, let's talk about this invitation we find here in Matthew 22. Who is it from? Not just from some great figure, but from the king of time and space. Nobody greater, nobody grander. And what is the invitation 
for, to be a part of his kingdom. This work of renewal and reclamation and restoration and redemption, to be a part of it somehow, making a difference in this sad world, now and somehow for eternity, and being a part of that. This is the great wedding feast. And the king is inviting us to be citizens of his kingdom. May we respond in the right way. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this message, for the good news of the gospel. This is better than any good news, better than any news of all. Knowing, hearing once and for all that this is not how things were meant to be and things will, never, will not forever be this way. Change is coming and it has begun. You're calling us to be a part of it, agents of the kingdom, disciples. We ask that you would open up our eyes, open up our ears. We want to be free from Christianity light, but to really be your disciples and to follow hard after you and to do that together. We pray in your name.